Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you here this morning. Uh, my name is Vaughan, and it's my privilege this morning to uh, open God's Word and have a look and consideration of uh, what it has to say to us. So let's do that now. I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you for your Word, and we ask, Lord, uh, that you will open it up to us and that we will learn and grow. Amen. I have a clear memory of the morning before my first HSC exam. Uh, while it's now a good <laughs> years ago, uh, I remember conversations with some of the guys in my year. Uh, and a few of them were a bit disappointed, jokingly disappointed, but nonetheless they were disappointed. Because previously that week, they'd been in the papers and uh, uh, on the, the news, a story that apparently the world was fated to end. Someone had predicted the end of the world, and they'd actually predicted it the night before our first HSC exam. So when we gathered that morning, and it was the same as much as every other morning, there was definitely perhaps that tinge of slight disappointment. I can't remember who predicted it, and to be honest, no one in my year really thought it was going to happen, but we still were joking about it. We, we were living, uh, we hadn't lived as though we thought it was going to happen. You know, none of us had stopped studying, well, unless we were going to stop studying anyway, but none of us had, had actually prepared as if we thought the world had ended. I mean, if the world had ended years ago, what would that have meant? Apart from us not having to sit to you in English, none of us really gave that much thought. Well, here, when we turn to Luke's Gospel, we have people who actually have expectations and are thinking about things. They're thinking about the kingdom of God. They're anticipating its coming. And Jesus, however, wants to challenge his hearers. And in this parable, he challenges them with two things. Firstly, that their assumptions about when the kingdom of God is coming, but also he wants them to consider and think about what it means for that kingdom to come. So let's turn now to the Gospel, and Luke starts in verse 11 by really embedding us in when and where we are. In verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. All right, we're still where we were last week, after the meeting with Zacchaeus, where Jesus has declared that salvation has come. It's led to people wondering about the kingdom of God. It's not surprising, Jesus' declarations of salvation for Zacchaeus, but it's also related to where they are. In Luke's Gospel, as we've been looking at it for the past few weeks, Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem. He's been heading in that direction. And where they are now in Jericho, they're about 27 kilometers from Jerusalem. It's not far now. And the people around are starting to think that when he gets to Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is going to appear at once. He's bringing up those expectations and anticipation for them. And in fact, the section after what we've read today, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And when he arrives, people will spread their cloaks on the road for him to ride over in a donkey. They'll sing praises to him. These expectations are high because these people are wanting and longing for that kingdom of God to come. It's a right longing. Let's acknowledge that. They're, they're in the land. 
that God had promised them, they're anticipating the coming of his kingdom because they're under Roman control. While they're in that land, things are not the way they would want them to be. And so they have hopes. So Jesus tells them this parable. And Luke says to us that he tells them this parable to challenge those expectations. We pick up in verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his servants hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. So this parable starts us off centred on a man, one of noble birth, who's making a trip, a really important trip, not a, a vacation, but he's going to be made king. It's something that might seem a little bit strange to us, but it was very familiar to the people of the time. In the land of, of uh, Judea, they were ruled over by client kings, kings who had authority as kings, but they gained that authority from the Romans. And in fact, in Jericho, uh, the ruler there, Archelaus, actually had a massive palace. And Archelaus himself was the son of Herod, and when Herod had died, he had made a journey to go to Rome, there to have his kingship confirmed. And interestingly, when Archelaus went, we also find out from the uh, Jewish historian Josephus that the people hated him so much because of his cruelty that they sent a delegation after him to Rome to ask that he not be made king. And that delegation was actually successful. He was not made king, he was still given authority, but he would not be made king until he proved himself worthy of doing so, which never happened. So this idea of kingship and confirmation and even delegations to go and oppose a king was very familiar to the people to whom Jesus is telling this parable. It may seem strange to us, but to them it's very familiar. And so the parable also introduces, as well as the king, these two groups, the servants and the man's subjects. And we're told that the subjects of this king also hate him, also do not want him to be king. And they even go so far as to send a delegation after him to oppose him being made king. There is a real opposition to this man of noble birth. But the subjects in Jesus' story aren't like the subjects of Archelaus, because the man was made king. In the parable, it jumps straight from, we don't want this man to be, be our king, to he was made king, however, and returned home. So how does all this relate to their expectations of the kingdom coming? Well, the, the people are somewhat on the right track. They do recognise that Jesus is connected to the coming kingdom. But if they expect the kingdom to come, Jesus is telling them that they need to wait. That the one who will be made king will go away and return. Pointing forward to his leaving, but that he will return. And we shouldn't be surprised at this story of people who oppose and hate him. Because as we've read the gospel, we've met those people again and again, haven't we? Those who sought to trap and question Jesus, to undermine him, 
those who are more concerned with their own standing than with who he is. But any opposition to Jesus will not be successful. Just as in this parable, he is made king and he returns. And upon his return, we then turn our attention to this other group, the ten servants. And each of these servants were entrusted with a task. Each had been given one mina and instructions to put the money to work. All right, in verse 13, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And now he is back. We're going to find out what have these servants done with the money. We pick up in the second half of verse 15. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. So first we're introduced to those who have put that mina to work, who have done what the king commands. And the first of them, note his incredibly massive return. He's turned one mina into ten. Right? The numbers one and ten may not seem significantly different. That's a thousand percent return. Imagine the investing jobs this guy could get. You know, promising thousand percent return? Everyone would be lining up. But as incredible as the return that this man has gained is, look at the reward that he is then entrusted with. He's then given ten cities. Simply for doing what his master asked. It's a huge step up. A mina is worth about three months' wages. All right? It's not an insignificant sum, but it's not a massive sum. But his trustworthiness with that amount shows that he can be entrusted with more responsibility. He did what he was asked, not because he was expecting that reward. He did what he was asked because that is what his master wanted him to do. And his master, seeing that he is trustworthy, is generous in providing him with rewards. While his master was away, he did what he was asked to do. And so he gained that reward because his master is incredibly generous. And it's repeated with the second servant. And note for both of them, that reward is the opportunity to serve more. Because they've proved trustworthy serving with a little, they can be entrusted with more. All right? They're not getting an early re retirement. They're getting more responsibility. And also, interestingly, both of them ascribe the growth not to themselves or their own efforts, but to the mina that the king gained them. So your mina has gained ten more. Your mina has gained five more. They recognize that it is the king who gave them the mina. That it's his investment that they have um, moved forward. And I think sometimes we want to jump and put this straight onto us and think about how it applies, and we will do that. But I also want us to think about what it's saying to those who are listening, those who are expecting the kingdom to come at Jerusalem. Their expectations are going to be upset. What they think is going to happen is not going to happen. There's not going to be a de declaration of Jesus' kingship and a sweeping away of Roman rule in the terms of the kingdom appearing at once. 
Yes, the kingship of Jesus will be seen in his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. But it won't be what they are expecting. And so this question is being asked. That will they be faithful servants? What will they do while they wait for the king? And for us who live on the other side of Easter, who know that Jesus is king, who know that he has ascended, but also that he will live again, that he will come again. Do we think about what it means to be a faithful servant? To use what he gives and grow it. To be faithful to the commands of our master. Because those two servants are not the only ones that we meet. There's also this third servant, the one who has not been as trustworthy as the other two. In verse 20, Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Remember, the instructions of the king were clear. Here is Amina, put it to work. So his servant comes to him and says, here's your money, I wrapped it up in some cloth. It's an interesting response, isn't it? I mean, in rabbinic teaching at the time, there were references to wrapping money in cloth. It was held as an incredibly unsafe way to store money. So not only has he not put the money to work, he hasn't even stored it safely. But then he goes one step further. He has the audacity to try and shift the blame off himself and onto his master. It, it's really on one level a classic excuse. It reminds me actually of sometimes talking with my children. One of them does the wrong thing. It's clear, I've observed it, it goes against a command that I've given them. It's done. So when I then bring that up, ask them why. Uh, the response then comes, yes, but Caleb. And it's not only children, is it? Who here honestly likes to be confronted when they have done the wrong thing? Likes to acknowledge when they've been in the wrong? Who here doesn't feel the instinct to want to try and find another person or another circumstance to place that blame upon? It's a really natural human instinct. And in fact, if we go back to Genesis 3, we'd not be surprised because there we find the man blaming the woman, the woman blaming the snake, trying to shift responsibility off. I mean, the servant on one level is, is pretty spectacular though because he's not just trying to shift the blame to someone else, he's trying to actually blame the one who gave him the mina and the command in the first place. He's really stepping it up in terms of his blame. And he's saying, you're a hard man. You take what you did not put in, you reap what you do not sow. And to bring it back to my poor children again, being used as a sermon illustration, but nonetheless, it, it does sound like one of their favourite responses. 
When I tell them off, they often say to me, you're a hard man who reaps what you do not sow. No, no. What they do say is, it isn't fair. That's the heart of this cry. He's saying, you're not fair. I haven't bothered putting it to work because you're not fair. You profit off the labours of others. You'll take what's not yours. But if we compare what this servant is saying to what we've seen of the master in the parable, do these two things match up? Because the master did put in. He provided the original mina. This man is the master's servant who's been given clear instructions. And in fact, what we've seen with the other two servants is this master is generous, beyond belief. He's given a reward of charge of 10 cities for stewardship of one mina turning it into 10. So the master here turns around and judges the servant by the servant's own words. Now in doing this, he's not admitting the truth of the words, but he's simply asking, how would one act if I was like this? If he was the man that his servant describes, why has the man not acted by it? He's pointing out that the words the servant uses and the actions he takes are not in any way congruent. If you were scared of this man, if he was a hard man, why would you act this way? He's acted if he believes the master is the opposite of his description. What the master's words expose is this servant's laziness because he didn't even try at the most basic and simple level. In a translation, you know, to put it on deposit. Well, that is literally to put it down on the table of the moneylender where people could borrow and repay interest and he would get a share of that interest that he could have then repaid to his master. No work really involved by him at all. A small step. But instead, he wrapped it in cloth. Didn't even try to keep it safe. It's dereliction of the highest order. Not only did he not do what his master commanded, but his actions are about as far away from it as possible. I mean, thinking contextually, we've just had the story of Zacchaeus. And in the story of Zacchaeus, we see a man who cheated people, did the wrong thing, and then turned his life around. Has had a clear change in his life, gave him, has promised to give money to the poor, to make restitution above and beyond to those he's cheated. There's the old Zacchaeus and the new Zacchaeus. He values what he has been given. He values that in Jesus coming to him. But this servant does not value what he was given. He didn't keep it safe. I think it's interesting when we come to read this parable, sometimes we might get caught up in thinking about the minas and the cities and the rewards and what equals what and how it goes, but that isn't the point. It's not trying to work out what's the different levels of rewards or how do we judge the levels of success. It's not about how much can be gained. It's about whether we are trustworthy servants of the master, whether we are faithful to the commands that he gives, or do we ignore his commands? Do we blame him for giving the command in the first place? Try to turn things around and put them on someone else or on him? Do we understand that we are servants of the king? 
that he has given us gifts in order to serve him. And look, it doesn't have to be big and flashy. Sometimes I think this is where we get caught up. When Jocelyn was praying earlier, we heard churches in Sri Lanka who were comparing growth numbers to see who's coming out ahead. I can actually remember going to a, a Christian camp for leaders when I was at uni. And part of the weekend, there was an interview and a discussion. And one of the questions I was asked was, how many people have you personally led to Christ in the last year? Do you know what that question did? It made me feel like a failure. Like I wasn't getting things right because I couldn't give a number. I didn't have a number. I'd obviously not been doing things right. But I think that question itself kind of ties into what can become a problem, that we make faithful Christian service about big results rather than faithfulness. All right, don't hear me saying, by the way, that it's not important to share the gospel and to, to long to see people come to Christ. No, that's a critical part of what we are to do. But we're called to serve God where we are. We're called to serve Him in the ordinary and the everyday. A few years back, the theologian Michael Horton actually released a book called Ordinary. And he wrote that as a reminder that the Christian life is marked by ordinary day-to-day faithfulness. That the task we have is living out our faith. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And to love our neighbour as ourselves. That it might be found in big things, but it's also found in the little in the preparing freezer meals for the hub of hope, in the caring for our children, in the encouraging one another in conversation. I just want to briefly quote Horton's book. What did you do for the kingdom today? How did you impact the world for Christ? Our tendency might be to hesitate at that point, trying desperately to recall something worth reporting. Yet every day, in all sorts of ways, we're not even aware of The kingdom is growing and our neighbours are being served. There may be a quiet reference in the coffee room that provokes a co-worker weeks later to ask a question about life and death, maybe even addressing it not to you, but another believer. You made lunch for the kids and got them to school on time. You worked well with your hands to supply neighbours with what they need. See, I think Horton's right in that point that faithful service doesn't need to look splashy. What is important is that it is faithful. And we do it in all areas, in our church, in our home, in our work. Because turning back to this servant, what do we see? Well, he cannot be trusted. And so the mina is taken away from him. But the master doesn't take it back to himself. Instead, he gives it to the one who's already got ten minas. It, it puzzles those standing by. In verse 25, sir, they said, he already has ten. Almost an echo of it's not fair. Why does the man with ten minas need another? I mean, he's got to keep the ten minas he already got and he's been given charge of ten cities, but he gets it because he has shown himself faithful and trustworthy to serve. And the king replies in verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, it's not about money, all right? It's not promising the rich will get richer. Uh, In fact, in the previous chapter, Jesus warned about wealth. It's about showing faithfulness. Why does he get the other mina? Because he has served God faithfully. And the reward for faithful service is the opportunity to serve more. 
It doesn't have to be flashy, although sometimes there might be big opportunities to do things. But it will be day to day, in moments both big and small, seen and unseen. That is what we are called to do. And then the parable ends by turning back and reminding us of those who had opposed the king. In verse 27, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It seems an extreme fate, doesn't it? But it's a reminder that to oppose God's king is pointless. We can either trust and serve him or oppose him, but that opposition cannot triumph. All the schemes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did nothing to prevent Jesus doing what he came to do. Any opposition to him today cannot prevent him from returning. So this parable tells people that the kingdom was not coming when they expect it, but it is calling to faithful waiting, faithfully serving the king because the king will return. And that is where we find ourselves, a people waiting for our king to return. And we have a task to live in a way that is faithful to him, a way that follows his commands, to serve him in those different areas of our lives. To do what he wants us to do, to love him and to love our neighbours as ourselves. I'm going to close by praying a prayer from the Australian prayer book that I love and I think is actually a good one for us to consider and regularly use. Eternal God and Father, by whose power we are created and by whose love we are redeemed, guide and strengthen us by your Spirit that we may give ourselves to your service and live this day in love to you, one another and to you through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.